Welcome to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds, a weekly podcast for pharmacists, physicians, physician assistants, and nurse practitioners who are interested in learning more about clinical pharmacology topics. I'm your host, Garrett Schramm, Director of Pharmacy Education and Academic Affairs at Mayo Clinic. To claim pharmacology CE credit or to get a copy of presentation slides, visit ce.mayo.edu slash pharmacy podcast. Transplant Associated Thrombotic Microangiopathy, or TATMA, is a life-threatening complication after hematopoietic cell transplantation. Complications may result in acute injury to the vascular endothelium by chemotherapy, radiation, infectious pathogens, or when immune dysregulation causes target organ injury or multi-organ dysfunction syndrome. Very poor clinical outcomes for untreated TATMA with multi-organ dysfunction syndrome necessitates the need for prompt diagnosis and interventions. Joining us on Pharmacy Grand Rounds podcast is Dr. Kashina Kennedy to outline clinical presentations, manifestations, and goals of therapy in pediatric patients diagnosed with TATMA. Let's start off with a patient case. AB is a two-year-old with atypical teratoid rhabdoid tumor who is now day plus 11 autotransplant. She was admitted to the pediatric intensive care unit due to respiratory failure secondary to alveolar hemorrhage, hypertension, acute kidney injury, and nephrotic range proteinuria. I've included BMP, CBC, and a complement panel for review. She was diagnosed with transplant-associated thrombotic microangiopathy, or what I will refer to for the remainder of the presentation as TATMA. By the end of this discussion, my goal is to be able to treat this patient with the optimal care. For learning objectives, we will review and identify pathophysiology, clinical manifestations, and diagnostic criteria for TA, TMA, and pediatric patients, differentiate risk factors associated with TA, TMA, and discuss prophylactic treatment in our pediatric population, and finally, explore treatment and emerging therapy options of TA, TMA in our pediatric patients. For those in the audience who are unfamiliar with TATMA, it is a life-threatening complication following a hematopoietic stem cell transplant. It is the result of acute injury to the vascular endothelium caused by chemotherapy, radiation, infectious pathogens, or immune dysfunction. It is exacerbated to target organ injury or multi-organ dysfunction syndrome or MODS. And at this point, clinical outcomes for untreated TATMA with multi-organ dysfunction syndrome are very poor, all of which necessitates the need for immediate and prompt therapy and optimization. In general overview of the pathophysiology of TATMA, you have this activation of the endothelial cells that produce a procoagulated state. This then activates an, immune, an increase in number of immune cells, which further activates the complement cascade 
and microthrombi, microthrombi formation, which I will discuss in the next, further in the next slide. The complement pathway includes the classical, lectin, and alternative routes, which through various steps all come together to form the C3 protein, which is then which then cleaves to C3A, C3B, which causes inflammation and phagocytosis when attached to the endothelial cells. This then further is amplified to C5, which is causes that increase in inflammation. C5 is then cleaved to C5B and C5A, which in turn causes this, comp uh, this membrane attack complex, which also known as SC5B9. It is this complex that causes the increase in uh, Tissue, uh, tissue damage, cell lysis, and that microthrombin formation. I've also included the interferon complex loop. And I do understand that at first glance, this can be a little bit overwhelming. However, I do want to include this figure to show that interferons, as well as the complement uh, pathways work together to both <clears throat> cause this C5B9 activation, leading to direct endothelial injury and TATMA. Since our clinical manifestations are uh, affect multi-organ systems, I wanted to break those organ systems down and discuss each, uh, each presentation per system. So we start with the kidneys. You can see proteinuria, hypertension, or acute or chronic kidney injury. The gastrointestinal tract can lead to severe abdominal pain, intestinal bleeding, diarrhea, vomiting, or ascites. From a CNS standpoint, our patient can experience headache, seizures, confusion, or hallucination. And finally, cardiopulmonary uh, manifestations can look like pulmonary hypertension, pleural effusions, or refractory pericardial effusions. I've listed this table to differentiate diagnosis and the suggested evaluations delayed by organ systems. I want to focus solely on the center column entitled differential diagnosis. It is because the mini differential diagnosis that is associated with each organ system may cause a delay in diagnosing TATMA in our pediatric patients. <clears throat> Next, we will discuss diagnostic criteria. Histological diagnosis of TATMA via a tissue biopsy is the gold standard. However, when our patients are not stable enough to withstand this process, we will have to consider other options. Then you have your Chol and Jodel's criteria, which assess presence of schistocytes, with our, which are split red blood cells, elevated LDH, thrombocytopenia, or need for repeated platelet transfusions, anemia, or the need for red blood cells transfusions, 
key differences between the two diagnostic criteria is Choi Cho criteria requires that our patients meet all five to be to have a diagnosis of TATMA. And Jodell's criteria looks at three additional characteristics, which are hypertension, proteinuria, greater than 30 milligrams per deciliter on a random urine analysis, and terminal complement activation, which in the form of SC5B9, which is what we mentioned on our previous slide, and this number greater than 244 nanograms per mil will warrant that diagnosis of TATMA according to Joe Dell's criteria. So this brings us to our first assessment question. Feel free to use your smartphones and tablets or via web at pollev.com slash mayorx, which pathogenic component of the complement pathway is part of Jodell's criteria in patients with TATMA. It looks like the majority of our responses are, um, are leading us to that membrane attack complex or SC5B9. And this is the correct answer. It is this that is monitored in our Jodell's criteria that, uh, that leads to that direct endothelial in, uh, injury. So now that we discuss pathophysiology, clinical manifestations, and diagnostic criteria, I want to transition to talking about risk factors associated with TA, TMA, and pediatric patients. Ofeki and colleagues studied to a, a study to identify a risk profile for developing TA, TMA in children undergoing HCTs. They utilize either a biopsy or Jadel's criteria and 439 children, of which approximately 6% 6 develop TA, TMA. They assessed the, the assessed risk factors that were contributed to TATMA were peripheral blood stem cells, active comorbidity at day zero of transplant, the number of transplants greater than one, active comorbidity plus high-grade acute GVHD or graft-versus-host disease were all deemed statistically significant in being risk factors in the development of TATMA. Of note, mismatch graph was not statistically significant, but was considered a notable mention in being a risk factor for this development. Schaller and colleagues described the prevalence and outcomes and risk factors for meeting two diagnostic criteria. So they included both Jodell and Cho's criteria and assessed 370, 307 pediatric HCTs in both and allogeneic stem cell transplant and found that the number of transplants uh, two or greater, transplant type allogeneic, HLA mismatch eight or below, eight of 10 or below. Again, we see that active acute graft versus host higher grade three or four, 
as well as active infection, whether it's bacterial, viral, or fungal, were all considered statistically significant in patients to develop, sorry, all considered to be statistically significant risk factors for the development of TATMA in pediatric patients. And finally, our Higgum and colleagues described a small uh, single-centered uh, single experiment of TATMA only looking at allogeneic setting and pre-transplant in prophylaxis, which the prophylaxis we will discuss later in the presentation. They looked at 257 patients and determined that underlying disease, severe aplastic anemia specifically, CMV IgG seropositive prior to transplant and calcineurin inhibitor exposure prior to admission to transplant were all considered to be risk factors for the development of TATMA. I want to point out that calcineurin inhibitors was co-founded by co-founded by um, our by 50 greater than 50% of our patients having um, underlying disease of severe aplastic anemia, which those patients were already exposed to calcineur inhibitor prior to admission for HCT. So I just want to point that out. So in summary, our risk factors can be divided into three groups, are in, inherited or non-modifiable, transplant-associated, or post-transplant events. I've highlighted the risk factors that have been shown to be statistical significant in the three studies that we just reviewed. However, I did include all of the risk factors that have been mentioned in the literature to be associated with, with increased risk for development of TATMA. Next, we will discuss prophylactic approaches to TATMA. Due to the increase in risk factors, the mo uh, multiple risk factors, um, determining a prophylactic approach could be, could be useful and beneficial to our patients who, um, who, are, who may develop, who are at higher risk of developing TATMA. So I want to bring back to the Higgum and colleagues study that not only looked at a pre-transplant risk, but also assessed the use of prophylactic regimens of EPA and N-acetylcysteine. And I've listed the dosing information below. These medications, uh, the use of these medications came from previous, previously Previous case reports and studies and EPA use is in use is to uh, reduce inflammations of the cytokine and inhibit platelet aggregation and prevention of that vascular endothelial damage. And N-acetylcysteine removes reactive oxygen species and has mucolytic effects, which uh, disrupts those disulfide bonds. Both have an overall low low side effect profile. So administering these medications in our pediatric patient were deemed, were deemed to be safe. Before we look at the results of this study, I do want to highlight some terms and definitions. 
A patient was considered high risk if they met three of the four uh, criteria. So greater or equal to 10 years of age, an ethnicity other than white, ABO blood group incompatibilities, or haploidentical donor. They were considered to have severe TATMA if they met at least one of the following, an ICU admission, surgical drainage of effusion, dialysis or neurologic involvement, or the presence of GI bleed. So we, we want to first assess the pre-implementation or the no prophylaxis. So you have your 250 patients who, under, who undergone allogeneic stem cell transplants. For six, 161 patients were included in the before the prof, prophylaxis implementation. These patients were stratified to standard and high risk at 135 and 26 patients, respectively. And you see the typical TATMA range from two to approximately 4% um, in the standard and high risk, where the uh, severe TATMA was up to 23% in our high risk population. And this rendered a one-year cumulative incident of TATMA of greater than 28%. After our prophylaxis uh, implementation, we have 96 patients who were included in this post-analysis. They were divided again to standard and high risk at 73 and 23 respectively. You still have approximately the same typical TATMA risk ranging from 2 to 4%. But I do want to note, note that high risk was decreased to 0% in our, uh, in our severe TATMA high risk patients and less than 2% in our standard risk patients. Decreasing the one-year cumulative incident of TATMA from greater than 28% to less than 5% after using our post-prophylaxis uh, implementation. So the author concluded that high-risk patients would benefit most from our prophylactic treatment. And so what I took away from the study is prophylactic treatment, um, although not statistically significant because it didn't reach a power to detect. However, it can be assumed to be clinically significant, seeing that decrease not only in the incidence of severe TATMA, but the overall one-year cumulative um, incidence of TATMA going from 28% to less than 5%. I will admit that additional studies are needed before we add, add these prophylactic options to become a standard of practice in our pediatric patients. And this brings us to our second assessment question. Which of the following are examples of risk factors and prophy potential prophylactic options used for TA, TMA in pediatric patients? A, HLA mismatch in EPA, prior transplant in N-acetylcysteine, active infection 
and acetazolamide, D, A and B, E, none of the above. It looks like the majority of the responses are correct as the answer is both A and B. Um, as they have, as HLA's mismatch in prior transplants, both have been shown to be risk factors in our pediatric patients. And we just looked at a study that shows effective use of EPA and inocetocysteine. C is incor incorrect, not because of the active infection, because to my knowledge, I don't know a study that includes acetazolamide as prophylactic use in our pediatric patients. So it's only part, partly correct. Now we will move on to, we will now transition into the treatment. To my knowledge, echolizumab is the only medication that currently being used off-label for the treatment of TATMA in our pediatric patients. So to discuss the mechanism of action, I want to return back to our complement pathway. Echolizumab is a monoclonal antibody that binds to the complement protein C5. This prevents the cleavage from C5B and C5A and ultimately inhibits the formation of that SC5B9 which again causes that direct endothelial lysis, causes that tissue damage, that microthrombi formation, and so on. The use of it in our pediatric patients stemmed from a study from Jodell and colleagues in 2020 who wanted to determine the incidence and risk factors of TATMA and compare it to the outcomes of pediatric patients with or without TATMA. So they assessed 566 total HCTs, of which 31% had TATMA. This was further stratified into standard risk and high risk, which were at 64 and 36% respectively. In this study, TATMA diagnosis was either confirmation via a tissue histology, high risk was considered those um, clinical laboratory or clinical markers that we discussed earlier, but instead of the four of seven, they required five of seven, and two of them had to be protein, uh, elevated proteinuria and elevated C, uh, SC5B9. And TMA and the third category was the previously mentioned criteria with the presence of MODS or again, multi-organ dysfunction syndrome. So all of these were considered high-risk diagnosis. Therapy was then divided into three buckets or groups uh, dividing by um, kilogram or weight. So our less than 10 kilos, 10 to 39 kilos and greater than 40 uh, kilos received 300, 600, and 900 milligrams IV, respectively. Patients received a loading dose if their SC5B9 was greater than 244 prior to initiation of therapy. Monitoring of the trough level in the C550, which is a total complement activity, and they were on this loading dose for five, uh, at least five doses or more. 
if that SC5B9 level was less than 244, they, they went straight to induction therapy and received their weight base dose um, every seven days, monitoring those same uh, parameters as the loading dose. Maintenance dose was continued um, either every seven to 14 days and uh, adjusted based off weight. And then when it came time to taper the medication, it tapered at the, uh, continued to taper every, every seven days at the lowest dose. When, a, when our patients are on ecolizumab for TATMA, we do monitor prior, during, and as we are considering discontinuation of the medication. So you will see throughout the course of the treatment, your uh, SC5B9 are being monitored throughout as well as any activity of MODS progression or signs of renal, uh, renal dysfunction or anything like that. So I've included a encompassed list of all the medication that will be monitored through, uh, throughout therapy. So when we get to the results, 81% of this patient population started with an elevated SC5B9 greater than 244 nanograms per mil. This means that majority of these patients receive that loading dose every 72 hours before going into, uh, going into induction therapy. TA, a TMA response to ecolizumab was about 64% had either a complete or partial response, which was a complete response was deemed as a decrease in proteinuria or decrease in that SC5B9. A, and a, um, but left 36% not responding to the medication at all. I do want to highlight that when doing an analysis of the response to ecolizumab, they found that the SC5B9 at TATMA diagnosis and before starting, starting ecolizumab were less likely were less likely to reach, um, to have a total response in this patient population. So if you had higher levels of your SC5B9 at the diagnosis or starting ecolizumab, this affected how, you, how the response to ecolizumab during the therapy would be. The graph on the left looks at outcomes in patients with high-risk TATMA treated with ecolizumab. The graph in blue shows that at a one-year post-transplant renders about a 66% survivor probability. However, when this was divided out uh, into bleeding versus non-bleeding patients, there was a huge difference with 44 to 78% respectively in this group leading to leading us to determine that these further assessment need to be made for our bleeding our GI bleed patients in the treatment with ecolizumab. So this, the author concluded that higher complement activation were less likely to have response and require more doses with the average dose being about 11 um, and the dose range being about 60, uh, 66 days, give or take. 
complement blockade with etalizumab, however, was deemed to be an effective uh, therapeutic strategy for high-risk TATMA. So I do want to take from the study that further studies are needed to assess those additional factors related to echolizumab response, given that huge difference with GI versus non-GI bleed in our patients. However, as of now, this is our standard of practice for treatment of TATMA in pediatric patients. This leads us to our Manzuno and colleagues study that came out in 2021. And so this really was a development a developmental study that looked at modeling and bleeding versus non-bleeding patients in TATMA and hopes to propose a uh, precise dosing algorithm to adjust for these patients. It was a prospective uh, analysis cohort using Jodell's criteria in assessing the population in our previous study. So again, our inclusion criteria looks familiar to our previous study because they assessed the, this patient population, but they only looked at high-risk patients. So only the 64 patients that were considered high-risk, they assessed further to determine bleeding versus non-bleeding risk and how to optimize ecolizumab uh, treatment in this patient population, subpopulation. Nice, about 19 patients represented our bleeding and 38 patients represent the non-bleeding patients of our total high-risk patients. 14 patients were, uh, of the bleeding, 14 patients were male versus the 22 patients uh, in our non-bleeding category were, um, were male. 84 and 79% uh, of patients in our bleeding cohort needed a red, blood a red blood cell transfusion or platelet transfusion respectively, compared to only 5% in our non-bleeding cohort. So when just looking at ecolizumab treatment and therapeutic monitoring, they realized that that concentration fell below target rapidly in our bleeding patients, that our bleeding patients required, as we've seen on the previous slide, more red blood cell and platelet transfusions. There was an increase in clearance in our bleeding patients. So they're clearing the medication quicker. And over, but overall, SC5B9 did decrease over time after that first dose. When looking at just a population pharmacokinetic modeling, they realized that again, SC5B9 and white were uh, significant covariants and predictors of how our patients would clear the medication. They also realized that ecolizumab clearance was only about 50% higher, uh, was 50% higher or greater in our bleeding patients. So again, they're clearing, we have another confirmation that these patients are clearing a lot quicker. And ecolizumab just demonstrated nonlinear clearance and uh, just overall in this patient population. They also looked at uh, simulations of ecolizumab concentration time profiles. And so this looked at the concentration above our target 
And so they realized that greater than five, the mean concentration greater than five days were uh, sustained with lower SC5B9 levels. So if you were initiated with a lower SC5B9, you maintain these target concentrations level for greater than five days. Weight and dose also contributed to this uh, maintenance of concentration up to seven days. And then our bleeding populations generally fell below these targets um, a half a day to a whole day sooner than our non-bleeding patients. When proposing an optimal loading dose schedule. They looked at um, the dose um, in atypical hemolytic uremic syndrome, um, which Ecoluzumab is approved for. And they realized that with this dosing schedule, the maximum probability of target attainment was only 50% in our non-bleeding patients, leading them to believe that we there needs to be a dose, a dose adjustment as well as a frequency adjustment. So just to bring it all together, um, to optimize our loading dose schedule. The current dose recommendation for HUS is as follows. They adjusted it to obtain at least 80% target, which you can see that generally you're increasing not only the dose, but also decreasing that frequency from a week to as, as soon as one day. Generally, our MIG uh, per kg dosing is 30 to 40 MIGs per kg every two to three days in all of our patient population. And I just want to also compare this to our previously recommended recommendations for TATMA and compare and contrast the difference. We noticed that these doses are higher and the frequency are a lot shorter compared to our current dosing recommendations of about seven to 14 days. So this really leads us to areas that we can optimize our therapy for ecoluzumab for the treatment of TATMA. So the author concluded that PKPD modeling-based ecoluzumab dosing is needed for our bleeding patients. And although target attainment of 80% was identified, we still should try to individualize the dosing. I think you did a great job addressing that pending question of what do we do in our bleeding population, our GI bleed population, and how can we optimize therapy? However, I do think at minimum there needs to be a clinical cohort study um, before incorporating these dosing recommendations to our standard of care. So back to our patient. I've highlighted all of the lab abnormalities, clinical presentation, as well as any risk factors in this pediatric patient. I do want to note that our patient is 18.2 kilos and her SC5B9 was 166. So with our last question, Assessment question, which of the following would be an appropriate dose and regimen for ecoluzumab initiation in this pediatric patient who has been treated for TATMA? A, induction therapy of ecoluzumab 300 milligrams every seven days. 
Loading dose, Ecoluzumab, 300 milligrams every 72 hours. Loading dose, Ecoluzumab, 600 milligrams IV every 72 hours. Induction therapy, Ecoluzumab, 600 milligrams every seven days. And loading dose, Ecoluzumab, 900 milligrams every 72 hours. In the essence of time, I will go ahead and review the answers. Um, she is 18 kilos, so she will fall in that middle group who receives 600 milligrams every 72 hours because her SC5B9 was less than 244. Um, she would not need the loading dose, which would make B and C incorrect, B, C, and E incorrect. And just based off her weight, she would uh, be she would need the 600 milligrams every seven days for induction therapy. And briefly before I, before I conclude this presentation, I would just like to go over emerging targeted approaches. We have medications that protect our endothelium. Um, so these include TNA alpha inhibitors, statins, EPA, which we mentioned earlier, as well as inhibitors of endothelial damage, which also can include EPA, which was used as prophylactic agents earlier, defibrotide, which was also in a uh, phase two study that showed potential um, reduction in uh, developing TATMA in our high-risk uh, population, as well as some other medications that are continuing to follow continue to be studied um, in phase two and three studies um, that include our pediatric patients. So um, for key takeaways, the severity of TATMA necessitates the need for early detection. Our clinical manifestations lead to motor organ dysfunction can lead to motor organ dysfunction. Ecoluzumab have been shown to be an effective treatment for high-risk patients. And just to monitor these emergent therapies for prophylactic and treatment and be able to tailor our therapy to our patient as necessary. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds. Join us weekly for more exciting clinical pharmacology topics.